We continue our Lenten worship of praying with the Psalms on this fourth Sunday of Lent. Today, we reflect on what it means to express our anger and remorse to God. Let us open our ears, minds, hearts, and imaginations to the hard words of this ancient poetic prayer as we pray alongside the psalmist. And heads up, this is a longer one, so settle in. God of my praise, don't keep quiet, because the mouths of wicked liars have opened up against me, talking about me with lying tongues. Hateful words surround me. They attack me for no reason. Instead of returning my love, they accuse me, but I am at prayer. They repay me evil for good, hatred in return for my love. Appoint a wicked person to be against this person, they say, an accuser to stand right next to him. When the sentence is passed, let him be found guilty. Let his prayer be found sinful. Let his days be few. Let someone else assume his position. Let his children become orphans. Let his wife turn into a widow. Let his children wander aimlessly, begging, driven out of their ruined homes. Let a creditor seize everything he owns. Let strangers plunder his wealth. Let no one extend faithful love to him. Let no one have mercy on his orphans. Let his descendants be eliminated. Let their names be wiped out in just one generation. Let his father's wrongdoing be remembered before the Lord. Let his mother's sin never be wiped out. Let them be before the Lord always, and let God eliminate the very memory of them from the land. All because this person didn't remember to demonstrate faithful love, but chased after the poor and needy, even the brokenhearted, with deadly intent. Since he loved to curse, let it come back on him. Since he didn't care much for blessing, let it be far away from him. Since he wore curses like a coat, let them seep inside him like water, seep into his bones like oil. Let him be like the clothes he wears, like a belt that is always around him. But let all that be the reward for my accusers get from the Lord, the reward for those who speak evil against me. But you, Lord my Lord, act on my behalf, for the sake of your name, deliver me because your faithful love is so good. Because I am poor and needy, and my heart is broken. Like a lengthening shadow, I'm passing away. I'm shaken off like some locust. My legs are weak from fasting. My, bone, my body is skin and bones. I've become a joke to my accusers. When they see me, they just shake their heads. Help me, Lord my God. Save me according to your faithful love, and let them know 
that this is done by your hand, that you have done it, Lord. Let them curse, but you bless me. If they rise up, let them be disgraced, but let your servant celebrate. Let my accusers be dressed in shame. Let them wear their disgrace like a coat. But I will give thanks to the Lord with my mouth. Among a great crowd I will praise God, because God stands right next to the needy to save them from any who would condemn them. The poetry of God for the people of God. Thanks. Let us pray. God, as we absorb the hard words of the psalmist, we invite your gentle touch, your compassion, your kindness, your justice into our prayers. And that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts may be truly acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer, let the people speak. After a psalm like that, I feel like I have to shake it off a little bit. It's just a little hard. Curious how many of you are Ted Lasso fans? Ah, uh, yes. Ted Lasso, the Apple TV show that just started its third season this week. Yay. Ted Lasso, for those of you who don't know, is about a, a football coach, college football coach from Kansas, who is summoned to London to coach a premier soccer league sort of as retaliation of the owner of that team toward her, her ex-husband. And he manages to transform the culture of the team and the players with his unrelenting optimism, his goofiness, and his deep, kind wisdom, taking apathy and cynicism and anger and transforming it. I've enjoyed it as a great lesson in transformative leadership. But I was longing for this third season, so I went back to the first season to rewatch some episodes. And there's one episode in which Ted lets the young, up-and-coming Nate, who is a, a guy who is just the towel guy and the shoe guy, the boot guy, as they say in London, and he lets him have a hand coaching. And he lets him say what he really wants to say to the players before they're to go out and have a pivotal game. And he approaches the key player, Roy Kent, Roy Kent, who can best be described as <laughs> If he were a Muppet, he'd be a cross between Oscar the Grouch and Bert. He has bushy eyebrows, he's constantly on the edge and angry and like a tinderbox about to be lit. And Nate says to him, the great Roy Kent, you're old now, 
and slow, and your focus drifts. But your speed and your smarts were never who made you what you are. It's your anger. It's your superpower. That's what made you one of the best midfielders in the history of this league. But we haven't seen it on the pitch all this season, Roy. I mean, you used to run like you were angry at the grass. You kicked the ball like you caught it fooling around with your wife. But that anger doesn't come out anymore when you play. But it's still in there. And I'm afraid of what it's going to do to you if you just keep it all for yourself. And as the team holds its breath, Roy becomes like a volcano. And he goes over to the corner of the locker room where the bench is mounted into the wall. And he rips it off and starts to roar and says, let's go beat these. <laughs> and they all go out and they win the game. As I rewatched it, it actually brought tears to my eyes. And I think some of it has to do with the fact that I was raised by a wonderful father who was kind and caring and loving, but he had a well of frustration and anger that he never knew quite what to do with. And he would bring it home, and I'm, thank God, was not abused by it, but I heard a lot of it. Some of us, I know, were not so lucky. And he died an early death at age 58, partly because I think he never learned how to deal with his anger. Anger is this powerful human emotion that we all experience. Two summers ago, I noticed myself getting a little edgy. Robert and I have a bedroom that leans out into an alleyway next to one of Cambridge's public schools. We've had that window for 23 years. But we always heard lots of chatter in the alleyway. I could tell you some of the personal lives of the teachers and custodians in that building. <laughs> And I figured after going into my third decade with this window, I needed to speak up and say something because there are noise ordinances, for God's sakes, in, in Cambridge. So we, we established a relationship to the person in charge of the building. But then, once again, at 5 in the morning, there would be a big dump truck out there loudly roaring outside our window. So I went out there in my flip-flops and my shorts and my t-shirt, and I tried to have a conversation with the dumpster guy who just roared back at me. I don't know, this is what I'm supposed to do, bud. And I said, well, you're actually legally not supposed to be here. I don't care, I don't know. He went ahead. And I later wished that I had said, I know you probably get up at 3.30 or 4 in the morning. Would you like it if I came to your house at 11 at night with our choir and sang outside the window? I didn't say that, however. I did end up communicating with people in charge of the building with lots of love and compassion. But I noticed this kind of crankiness stirring up in me, which sometimes feels good. And I realized I'm becoming a cranky old man. <laughs> and I don't want to be that. And I took it to my therapist, and we started working on it. And I will say that now there are signs in the alleyway after some very kind exchanges with the building managers with respect to them and the fact that I oversee a building of similar size to their school. I understand the problems of cranky neighbors. But can we all just respect that the acoustics in this alleyway are not great? The psalm that Thomas just read is an example of someone who's got a lot of issues going on. Probably frustration and annoyance turning to anger. And what often happens in the psalms is then they turn to these ideas of revenge and retaliation. Some of which, as we've been studying the psalms together, I realize many of us are not comfortable with that kind of revenge and retaliation. 
but it is very human and it is very real. Some people will preach to you that anger is a sin. I don't actually think anger is a sin. I think anger is this powerful emotion. And when we get stuck in it, when we spin in it, when we don't find ways to work through it or past it, it then separates us from our neighbors, from ourselves, and from God. And that's when it becomes a sin. Because it has worked its way into the patterns of our life. Now here's what I know about anger, and I will confess that I am still seeking to live this out. We only get angry about things we genuinely care about. Good family friend growing up said she and her husband never had an argument until they had kids because she didn't care enough about anything else, about the way they kept the kitchen or the bathroom or the bedroom until they had children. The good news about that is if we're willing to work past that anger, oftentimes compassion is right there behind it. They're often flip sides of the same coin. I also know that it can feel good be angry. It's like this steam engine that lights us up and makes us feel alive. And yet I'm aware that the letter to James says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of a human being does not produce the righteousness of God. Now you know how this anger seeps into your life, again starting sometimes with annoyance, then frustration, and then boiling over. I read a story of a Wall Street Journal reporter who has dedicated herself to studying the rule of St. Benedict. She's a part of a monastery where she goes regularly to work on her spiritual life. And she's written a book about it. Her name is Judith Valente. It's called How to Live. Now, Judith is a rather big shot reporter who at one point was working for the Wall Street Journal Bureau in Chicago. And she boarded a city bus, flashed her pass to the driver, and then sat down in one of the front seats and immediately put her nose in a book. But the driver apparently hadn't seen her flash the pass. And so he said, hey, miss, you didn't pay your fare. She didn't think he was referring to her, so she didn't look up from the book. And he said, hey, you, glaring at her through the rearview mirror. Me? Are you speaking to me? Judith said, yeah, you. She told him that she had shown her pass, but perhaps he didn't see it because he had on sunglasses and it's kind of dark inside the bus. No, you didn't, he said. She tried to pretend that she was no longer listening and began reading her book again. She was determined not to get out of her seat and show it to him because that would be acknowledging that she hadn't displayed it in the first place. The driver continued on ranting about people who try to get away with riding the bus for free. And that's when Judith felt a match flick on inside her. She rang the buzzer to be let off, but not before she issued a parting shot. If you knew who you were talking to, sir, you wouldn't be so rude, she said indignantly. Now, she reflects in her book, I don't even know what I meant by that. <laughs> Did it mean I'm a well-educated professional woman? Does it mean I'm a big-time Wall Street Journal reporter? As she reflected later, it was ridiculous and inappropriate. But at that moment, her pride and her wounded sense of justice were all that mattered to her. And she will admit she's a hothead. As she stepped off the bus, a passenger called out loudly from his seat, 
If you're such a big shot, how come you're riding a bus? As Judas said, so much for my ego. So much for not wanting to be humiliated. And for months after that, she wished she could go back and find that driver and apologize to him. She later reflects in her book that she thinks we have two types of anger, and I've been reflecting on this a lot. One springs from our own egos. It rises up when we think we aren't being respected, as she felt on the bus, or when we believe others aren't behaving the way we, they, we think they should behave, as me with the alleyway. But this kind of anger, Judith writes, imprisons us in an emotional abyss. In the Inferno, Dante reserved a special circle of hell for hotheads like Judith. He placed them in crowded swamps condemned to swat each other continuously for the rest of their lives. But there's another kind of anger, focused outside of the self. And that anger is aimed at injustices. It's the wrath that Jesus expressed when he turned over the tables in the temple at the money changers. It's the wrath that Dr. King and Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu showed at the discriminatory laws they were fighting. Judith says it's the wrath that she experiences as a journalist when she writes about lead poisoning in the water, or gang violence in city neighborhoods, or wage theft by unscrupulous employers. And when she finds herself slipping into ego-driven anger once again, she reminds herself that the source of her anger isn't outside of her, it's within. She says it's her own bruised self-image, acting like a child who's been denied a second helping of ice cream. Except the anger isn't the ice cream, it's more like arsenic. And it compels her to feed the better angels of her nature, not the angry wolves inside of her. What I've been thinking about a lot lately is I want to lean out of that ego-driven anger and be aware of what it is and be willing to dig down from where it may come from. And sometimes, for me, it comes from my childhood. And I want to lean into the justice-driven anger, the anger that caused us to be on the steps at the State House Thursday morning to ask the legislature to invest $8.5 billion in affordable housing, the anger that makes us question why we have so many people with food insecurity right outside our doorstep, the anger that asks why in the richest country in the world we still can't measure the, our success by how well we're treating the poor among us. But all of us feel this anger, just like Judith on the bus, just like me in the alleyway, in ways that are kind of small and can be even a little petty. And so the question I encourage us to all ask ourselves, can I feel that the match has been lit? Do I notice that this powerful, incendiary, and I will say God-given emotion has stirred up in me? And am I willing to practice taking a moment, or two, or five, or ten, and just notice that the match has been lit? And for the long haul, I invite us all to ask ourselves, is my anger serving me? How is it serving me? Is it serving the bigger picture? And what needs to happen for me to get that anger out of the way or work through it so that the compassion can come through? That is a lifelong spiritual commitment and practice, my friends, one that benefits all of us when we step into it. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of a human does not produce the righteousness of God. 
Lately, I found myself saying to God, okay, God, I'm feeling this annoyance, this frustration. It's simmering. It's starting to become a pot of anger, and I really don't want to live there. So can you help me figure this out? What is going on? Can I just take a moment? Can you work with me to work through this? But what the psalmist also shows us is God can always handle our anger. And it is always okay to vent our anger to God. In fact, that might be the first place we need to go, to let it out and say what we're really feeling. Something like what the psalmist does in number five. Hear my words, Lord. Consider my groans. Pay attention to the sound of my cries, my King and my God. Because I am praying to you. Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I lay it all out before you, and then I wait expectantly. Because you are to God who enjoys wickedness. Evil doesn't live with you. Arrogant people won't last long in your sight. Because you hate evil doing and you destroy liars. The Lord despises people who are violent and dishonest, but me, I will try, God, and enter your house because of your abundant, faithful love. I will bow down at your holy temple to honor you. Lord, because of my enemies, because of my own fear, my own confusion, my own anger, please lead me in your righteousness. Make your way clear right in front of me. 